Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, Senior Pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday evening service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 and having completed the series on the book of Daniel, just going to take uh, four or five uh, of the Sunday nights that I'm speaking and go through the parables of the kingdom that are found in Matthew chapter 13. There's so many neat things there. And so we'll be reading from verse one in just a moment. But the story is told of two brothers who were rich, but very wicked. Both lived a very wild life. They used their wealth to cover up the dark side of their lives. But they attended church with mama. (laughs) And they gave large sums of money to various church-related projects. Suddenly, one of the brothers died, and the pastor was asked to preach his funeral. And the uh, other brother said, "Uh uh-oh, man, pastor, if he tells the truth, uh, that's really going to hurt mama's feelings and everybody. And so he went to the pastor and he slid an envelope of big cash across the thing and he said, there's enough money in there, it's going to pay the entire amount needed for the new sanctuary. But I only ask one favor, tell the people at the funeral that my brother was a saint. The pastor wanted the money, but he also wanted to keep his integrity, and he didn't see how he could make a statement like this, but as he was about to reject it and say no, all of a sudden an idea came to him, and he said, okay, we'll do it. And so the day came, and the funeral uh, arrived, and they did the music and the other things, and then the preacher got up and he said, this man right here was an ungodly sinner wicked to the core, and he wasted his life. He grieved the Holy Spirit in nearly everything he did. But compared to his brother sitting right there, he was a real saint. (laughs) Now, a lot of this message will sound familiar to you because I preached through the parable of the sower from Luke's gospel already. It's one of those that uh, appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's the first of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, so we're going to preach it again, looking at it particularly from what uh, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. And I just love this parable. Uh, You know, you think about the great parables of the Bible, obviously you think about the prodigal son that tells us about the heart of the father and the fact that nobody's gone too far, that uh, they can return because of how great God is and how loving and merciful he is and he loves U-turns and Ezekiel 18 he says I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked I wish everybody would turn and live Uh, we think about the parable of the good Samaritan that says basically everyone's our neighbor you know it doesn't matter what the other person looks like or acts like if they're able to help you you appreciate that and that's what you're to do for others be that kind of neighbor to others and rebuke of the Pharisees that love their kind and their kind only and, uh, but the parable of the sower would be right up there, and it's so powerful. I think about Billy Graham, 
that was such a great evangelist, such a great sower of the word, such a great preacher of the gospel, saw so many people trust Christ. And I heard him more than once say how much he appreciated the parable of the sower to help think, him think through the different kinds of responses that he'd seen at the Crusades over the years. He recognized that not everyone who made a profession of faith at the Crusades went on to follow Jesus. And he often looked back on this parable as very helpful in trying to process all that. The parable of the sower describes the different responses people have to the Word of God. And as we read this text here, do an honest assessment of which best characterizes your response to God's Word. And the good news is you can move it along the line to a better response if you haven't already. Matthew chapter 13, it says, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root with it, with, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables, these little stories? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, but not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed." lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation, you could use the word trouble there, for when trouble or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he or she stumbles. Now he or who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The parable of the sower. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for these words we've read. Thank you so much, Jesus, for teaching this parable to them and to us and the way it helps us process those who make a decision and fall away. Those who are in Christ and seem to be growing and yet going back and forth in their faith and many times when a Christian would do one thing and a non-Christian would do another, they backslide into doing what a non-Christian would do. And then we think about those who have gone on to where they bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. God, we pray that as we look through this parable of the sower, Lord, that you challenge us to have the right kind of response to your word, to order our lives around the gospel, and to make a difference for you, bearing fruit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the background of Jesus' parable here is that parables are little stories that use familiar object lessons to challenge our thinking. Jesus often added a shocking twist to familiar parables. They, would, they were used to hearing it and they'd put each other and hit each other in ribs and say, hey, this is how this one's going to end. But he would give a shocking ending to it, like the Samaritan being the hero in the good Samaritan story. Now, parables force us to see which response in the parable best characterizes our own response. And so usually parables have one overarching truth about God the Father and what he's trying to impress on us. And then there is a response that is negative, how you should not respond, or several responses that just aren't all the way what it should be. And then there's the response of a follower of Christ that he's calling for. Parables gave Jesus a way to uh, rebuke the Pharisees who were among those who didn't respond as they should and to affirm his disciples as they followed him. Now, Alan Payne shared with me this uh, from Warren Wearsby. He said, parables are first like a picture that give us sight. We see a portrait, a, a portrait of life, uh, something that we recognize and need to respond to. But they're also like a mirror. Uh, a mirror gives us insight, uh, not just to a world situation, but to our own lives, right, where we fit into the whole thing. And then parables are like a window giving us vision where hopefully we'll have a sight of the Lord and what he wants in our hearts and lives. They use the familiar to teach the unfamiliar. Telling parables allowed Jesus to make clear who the Pharisees were most like without explicitly saying it, for which he could have been prematurely killed. And so the rebuke is clearly there. As he continues to teach, they understand that he's talking about them and a way also, of course, to instruct his disciples. Um, so... He lets the word hang in the air for those who rejected them, but further explains them to his disciples, as is indicated in this passage here. The word mysteries in verse 11 is the Greek word mysterion. And the Bible several times makes clear that as the scriptures unfold, a mystery is being revealed that to previous ages of folks wasn't as fully understood as it is now. And that word for mysteries... Uh, as it's mysterion, the purpose and plan of God that's being worked out phase by phase in human history. Uh, the age of the church and sowing of the gospel everywhere is about to begin. Now, uh, when you think about the word kingdom, you've got to have a king, right? And the king in the scriptures is Jesus. Everything is moving toward his physical kingdom on earth. It's the hope of all the saints, Old Testament and New Testament, that one day Christ will reign 
on the throne promised to King David, the Davidic covenant, in the land promised to Abraham, the fulfillment, final fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so there's a king and there's a sphere where he reigns, there's kingdom. But you also have to have subjects, right? So there's a king and we are, those of us who follow him are his subjects. King, subjects, kingdom, a place, right? Now, as the gospels go along, Jesus often uses this word kingdom and properly understood, there's not going to be a physical reign of Christ on earth until his millennial reign and then the time later on on the new earth, right? Where heaven and earth are combined and there's a new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem on the new earth and that glorious time where it'll be forever and ever King Jesus, right? There will be a millennial reign before that that the scripture describes in Revelation chapter 20. So there's a part of when we talk about the word kingdom, we're talking about something to come. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a dispensationalist, but there's a type of hyper-dispensationalist or old-timey dispensationalist who said you can never use the kingdom to refer to anything but that which is coming. And yet those of us who read the Gospels and the Scriptures have said, you know what, it sure seems like that Jesus uses this word kingdom in two ways. One, about that physical rule that's to come, and one about the spiritual rule where when a person turns to him as Savior and Lord, he is already their king and they are already following him in anticipation of getting in on that physical rule later on. So there is a not yet and a one day coming, right? Now and not yet. So he rules us spiritually now. One day he'll have a physical rule and we're going to get to get in on it. And so how does that relate then if, if the kingdom is the king's influence expanding on earth? And Tony Evans just did a wonderful study Bible. And you might understand that Tony Evans, uh, who's a graduate of Dallas Seminary like I was, but he's smarter than I am. Um, he just finished up his Tony Evans study Bible, Right. And he, as you go through his notes in the gospel, he uh, is oftentimes reflecting on this kingdom set of values that we're supposed to live as, as kingdom men and kingdom women, right? So how does that relate to a church? A local church is an expression, right? An expression of the body of Christ. And so if you think about it this way, a church is like an embassy of the coming kingdom, right? And we are ambassadors for Christ representing to this world as we follow the king's rules now, we are representing what one day will be true for everybody that gets in on that physical rule, right? So everybody tracking with me there? There's a, a now and a not yet, a spiritual reign now that we embrace and there's a coming physical kingdom to come. Uh, let's just uh, catch that by turning to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And those of you uh, familiar with what I've been trying to teach um, will recognize we've been to this passage a lot and we'll continue to go because it's so key in understanding the, what's happening now versus Christ coming back later on. So Jesus had risen from the dead. He had spent uh, 40 days teaching his disciples. And in verse 6, it says, Therefore, when they had come together, this is right before he ascends to heaven, it says, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're thinking of that physical reign where King Jesus will reign from Jerusalem and all will be well. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. What's he saying to them? Not yet. That's what's coming. 
Well, if that's not yet, what now? He says in verse 8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit falls and all of a sudden from that day forward, you've got uh, the church uh, expression of the kingdom, embassies within uh, the uh, overall work of God. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the entire book of Acts is the gospel being spread, more and more people turning to Christ, churches being planted, that plant churches, that plant churches, uh, and it going forth from there until the rapture of the church one day, the final seven years that we heard so much about when we were in Daniel, and then Christ returning and reigning on earth. And so the uh, parables of the kingdom let us know a little bit about how things will flow during the time up until all that will happen later on. Well, verse 19 lets us know that the seed is the word of God. Some of the best words you'll ever speak are, the Bible says. Billy Graham said that over and over again. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And even if you can't say it like Billy Graham, trust it in your heart like that, you know. And uh, I just love, you never know as you as faithful folks who uh, give others confidence in your trust in the Word of God, you never know who you're going to affect with that. By the way, Billy Graham didn't always have confidence in God's Word. He was a young student once upon a time, and he was struggling because of all the attacks that came on the Word of God. He was at a camp out in California, and a lady, a Sunday school teacher named Henrietta Mears, who was also the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, she had a talk with him, and she was able to answer his questions, giving him confidence in the Word, and he had an encounter with God at the camp there, and he came out of that moment saying, Lord, I will preach this word. I'll trust you and preach it. Um, many of you have uh, heard in the past of a minister named John R. Rice, and he became known as a fierce defender of God's word, but he wasn't always that way. Once upon a time, he was a college teacher thinking about teaching other things, and he had great doubts about some of the things that were in the word. He was in Chicago for a meeting, and William Jennings Bryan Man, that goes back some decades, right? William Jennings Bryan was speaking at the YMCA, uh, and he spoke on the Bible and its critics, and he heard answers like he'd never heard before, and John R. Rice said, my goodness, there's more to it than I thought. He went to dinner with Bryan afterwards, asked him more questions. Bryan gave him satisfactory answers. The next day, the University of Chicago had a professor answer what William Jennings Bryan had said, and as he listened to the answers, he said, that professor isn't, hasn't answered a thing. He hadn't answered a thing. Brian was right. I can have confidence in the Word of God. And he did, and he went on to be a great preacher and the sword of the Lord man. Well, our job is to be like the sower, who with confidence shares the Word of God and lets it do its work. Charles Spurgeon said, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Amen? There's nothing wrong with a seed. It will do its work if it encounters receptive soil. Now, over here, we plow a field and then spread the seed where we've plowed the soil. And some people do that with, the word, with God's Word. They look for somebody already talking about God's Word, and they share it where it's already accepted. One of my great disappointments as a pastor is that most of the time, lay folks tend to view evangelism as trying to get somebody to go from another church to our church. <laughs> and if people are already in a good church, don't try to snipe them, right? 
uh, but, you know, uh, encourage them as they're in their kingdom embassy and you're in your kingdom embassy, and let's work together to do great things for the Lord, right? And there's going to be some shuffling over days and things that work out better for one individual or family, and that just happens over the years. I've just learned to smile about it because otherwise I'd be in tears about it all the time. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, there's so many people out there that do not know the Lord, and we need to spend that time with them. By the way, uh, Daniel didn't share it this morning like he did the day before. He shared a little bit this morning, but the day before, he talked about one youth pastor uh, who took the time, uh, one youth leader at his church who took the time to meet with him once a week when he was a young man struggling with questions and disciple him and teach him and how powerful that was. It's one of the reasons why on these Sunday nights, we're actually now, you see, we don't have as many youth down here as we used to. Well, they're over in the gymnasium. Some are in here, but others are over in the gymnasium there. I'm sorry, the youth area. And uh, while they're over there, they're doing discipleship small groups. And we're very excited about that. In fact, uh, this morning we had something real special happen um, uh, in the orchestra up here. Liam uh, McDonald played the tenor sax uh, with the orchestra, and you might have seen that several times it was him playing, uh, kind of leading out there, right? And I meant to say something about that and didn't, so if you see him, say, add a boy. Uh, but this is the kind of overlap that we have right now in the church's ministries, because since they're up here playing for a little bit at six or five, and the groups are up there at five, uh, youth have a decision to make that are in the orchestra. Do I play and then go over there? Do I just start out? I might miss something that's happening. And so uh, Liam was not here tonight because he starts out at five. Other youth were here and then went over there. And all of that's okay. We're trying to pour in and develop leaders as we go along too. So, um, But uh, Daniel had been discipled and took that time to do it. So here what we do is we plow the field and then spread the seed where we've plowed the soil. But over there, they spread the seed everywhere, right? They spread the seed everywhere and then go back and plow it. And that's a good word for us as sowers of the seed of the gospel, right? Everywhere we go, sow it. Encourage those who do believe to keep believing. Encourage those that don't believe to turn to the Lord and uh, spread the seed all over. And then what do we do? Not only do we spread the gospel all the time, but we keep on plowing too, right? We keep on doing those words. We keep checking in on those who have come to Christ. One of the things I love about Pilgrim's Progress is it shows quite clearly the fits and starts that a new disciple has. Pilgrim makes progress and then he regresses. <laughs> There's progress and regress. There is, oh my goodness, why is he over there in the Slough of Despond? Uh, why has he gone down that wrong path, you know, and those things. And every few chapters, he sees again the evangelist, the one who had initially pointed him to Christ, comes back and encourages him again. And we want to be those kind of people with those that we lead to the Lord. Now, unfortunately, these days there's a lot of criticism and hyper-analysis and not-so-friendly fire from evangelicals criticizing other evangelicals about the way they share the gospel. And whatever the motives of the critics, it has the unfortunate effect of making God's people reluctant to share the gospel as often as we did in days past. Um, and, uh, you know, I have heard one old way of doing it after another. Oh, we, ha, remember they did this, ha, crusade, ha, they did that, door to door, ha, they did that, you know. And each one being mocked and being replaced with nada, with nothing. And so, 
you know, as the one saint said, I like the way I do evangelism and the way you don't do evangelism. <laughs> and so we ought to be thankful when the gospel is shared. Think about the spirit of the Apostle Paul. He's there in Philippian jail, and he's writing to the Philippians to encourage them in the midst of his jail. And in Philippians 1, he basically rejoices when the gospel was shared with even by those who didn't like the Apostle Paul. And he says in Philippians 1.18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Isn't that great? Paul said, hey, some of their motives are off a little bit this way or that way, but I rejoice when Christ is preached because there are so many dry and thirsty areas where Christ needs to be preached. So rather than criticize others spreading the word, let's spend our time spreading the word, saying Jesus lives and Jesus loves and Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now the word here from verse 1 to verse 23, some version of the word here is used 16 times in this section. Hearing means listening with spiritual understanding and receptivity. It's a hearing that leads to response. So let's look at the different responses Jesus said there would be to the word of the kingdom shared. First of all, the hard-hearted response there in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one, Satan, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So, note it says there they don't understand it. And in those days they had field, the field had paths between the crops like ours do, and the ground was hard because all the laborers stepped there when they were harvesting they, or trying to work with the field, they would walk in that area and uh, they would be tramping down the seed and the birds would come and eat it up with, with, with there and it wouldn't get uh, in there. And that's what happened to many a hard-hearted person who has heard many sermons but just keeps blowing raspberries, you know, at the their need as a lost sinner. The gospel doesn't make sense to them. You hear more than one person as they think about Christ died for sinners say, well, I'm not a sinner. I mean, isn't it amazing the whole country loves the song Amazing Grace? It's kind of like our national hymn. Uh, it's sung at everything, Amazing Grace. And people want the grace, but they don't want to identify themselves as a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We want the grace, but we don't want to be a wretch. And the way to salvation is first to acknowledge the need, right? First to acknowledge the need. And the hard-hearted response says, I don't really need that. In fact, I'm doing pretty well without God. And in fact, I don't think too much of those who have embraced God. I think I'm better people than they are. And so we look at others and find ourselves okay, doing pretty good. And I think about um, how C.S. Lewis describes uh, in Mere Christianity, Dick Firkin and Miss Bates, you know. And Dick Firkin had it all. He was a very wealthy man. He had so much going for him. Uh, Miss Bates had come to Christ, but she had uh, an unpleasant disposition, you know. She was growing in her faith some. But the onlooker, C.S. Lewis would say, would look on and say, hey, she really is nobody, and Dick Firkin already has all he needs without Christ, and so there it is. And they laugh at the gospel, and C.S. Lewis says, you don't even understand how it works. He said if a homeowner was going to buy a $100,000 house and a million-dollar house, no one looking on would expect the $100,000 house to appear as nice as the million-dollar house, right? He said what you ask is when the change of ownership comes, 
does the $100,000 house start to show evidence that there's a new owner that's taken better care of the property? And the same thing with a million one. And so he said, the way heaven looks at it is, Crabby Miss Bates, man, she's come to the Lord and she's trying, she's growing, she's responding to what she's learning. It's going slow and things, you know, but heaven smiles at her. But meanwhile, Dick Firkin has so much talent he's squandering and things he could do for the Lord, but because everything's about glorifying himself and his human pride, uh, heaven looks and is disappointed and wrath still abides on him in a way it doesn't on her. The hard-hearted response, the person that says, I don't need God. There was a lady in George Whitfield's day when he was preaching the gospel, and she was mortified that he was saying the up and out were as sinful as the down and out. And she said, how monstrous to be told that one has a heart as sinful as the common wretches. It's so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. And George Whitfield's response was, lady, there will be a lot of people of high rank and good breeding in hell who never acknowledged they were a wretch that needed to turn to the Lord. If this is you, you're clearly not saved. You remain lost in your sin, and hell will be your final destination unless you turn to Jesus for salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And no proud person who holds on to their sin and won't repent uh, is going to be there. Well, the second response is in verses 20 and 21, the shallow-minded response. It says, but he received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Hmm. The Holy Land features many, much land where a thin layer of soil covers the rock. And when seed lands there, it starts to grow, but it hits that stone and there's nowhere for the roots to go. So without roots, the seed doesn't get the moisture it needs and the sun dries it up. This is the person who makes a shallow decision for Jesus on their own terms, thinking mostly of the benefits of being a Christian. So, you know, we have to be careful when presenting the gospel that we just don't say uh, to the youngest of children, heaven good, hell bad, you want to go to heaven or hell, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven, and of course all the hands get raised for heaven, right? We want to them to understand more uh, than that. Um, the benefits of being a Christian. And sometimes uh, in our day, one of the big ways that uh, Jesus is presented as the great counselor uh, who will make you feel good whether you repent or not. And so I think about the, uh, the hideous from heaven's perspective preaching of Joel Osteen who goes through the great promises of the gospel to those who believe but applies them to those who have shallowly believed or not believed at all. God is for you. Not if you repent, he's not for you. He's angry with the wicked every day. Uh, you are forgiven. Not if you haven't repented, he hasn't forgiven you. You can't be forgiven of sins you haven't repented of, right? So have, it's all presented as the benefits, you receiving God on your terms, and he is doing for you without you truly having turned from your sin. Part of the fault of this is the way we often present the perks of becoming a Christian. Come to Jesus, you'll go to heaven instead of hell. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll have God's love, joy, and peace. All those things are true, but it's not the whole story. If you come to Jesus, you're expected to be his follower. 
And following Jesus in a world that does not love him will bring new troubles into your life. And so we've got the four spiritual laws, but we ought to be more honest about the fifth one too. And that is those who embrace this message around the world have been harassed, persecuted, and even killed for bearing the name of Jesus in this world. It will all be worth it when we are in heaven. But you can expect temptation, you can expect trouble, you can expect persecution if you turn to Jesus. So the opposite of the prosperity gospel message is true, right? So the prosperity gospel says if you believe, you'll have less trouble, smoother sailing, etc. The opposite of the message is the New Testament message that says come to Jesus. Yes, you'll get eternal life. You'll have forgiveness of sins. You'll have the Holy Spirit residing in your heart. But in addition to all the normal trouble you get into the world you'll have an extra layer of trouble you get for bearing his name and his word in a place that hates his guts and has the Psalm 2 mindset toward God shaking their fist at heaven, right? And so we need to understand that, uh, that there is glory to come, but there is also, as we're resolved to follow him, not everybody's going to like it. In our own families and beyond, there are going to be people that reject and mock, and some people can't handle that, and when that trouble comes, they say, ooh, I thought this was plus without negative, let me out of here. The Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and not tried, G.K. Chesterton said. Does that describe you? I didn't want to go to hell, so I prayed to accept Jesus. I don't care about following Jesus, though. I've got my own plan for my life, and I don't want to submit to what God has for me. When they started talking about going to church and giving and serving and committing your life to Jesus, you were out of there. This kind of person walks away when adversity comes for being a believer. The little bit of trouble they encounter reveals their lack of true faith. A little persecution makes them turn away. If this is you, you may not really be saved and definitely should not have assurance of your salvation. So we're talking about two things. One is whether you're really saved or not, and the other is whether you should have assurance of salvation, right? Now let's get real for a moment. As a pastor, I've done lots of funerals, and I would still rather have this response than no response at all like the first one, right? But there certainly can't be assurance uh, because in the Bible, assurance comes with an internal witness from the Holy Spirit that your sins have been forgiven. And it also comes, part of the, one, one of the great things about being in church together is there's also supposed to be an external witness where others know you well enough to say, I see Christ in you and your responses. And that is supposed to be part of our overall encouragement as we walk with Christ together and we grow together in Christ is how that extra level of assurance comes when we together are walking in the light as he is in the light and marching toward Zion. Well, if this is you, you need to commit to following Christ, going to him in prayer, getting into the word of God and applying it in your life. You need to put your roots down deep in him. And some in this number really are saved. They just haven't gotten into the word of God yet. Uh, I saw it at the previous church, seen it some here too. There's all kinds of people that know the Christian jargon, right? And yes, I've received Christ, and in response to receiving him, then I got baptized. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, they come into the church, they transfer their membership in, whichever way it winds up being like that. But then something happens now that hadn't happened in previous years for them. In their Sunday school class and in the services, they really start getting into the Word, and the Word really starts getting into them, and guess what happens? The roots start to go down. And two years later, 
They are transformed people because now it's not just profession, but there is growth because of being rooted in the Word. Some seed, when you think about the seed analogy, does lie fallow for a while. And I I think about this. There's a field at our house. We haven't put down any seed in it, but things grow up every spring when spring comes, right? It's just there and it's not being nurtured, but it's wild and it's there. And so we're not the judges. We're going to see the parable of the wheat and tares coming up. But if this is you, grow in the Lord. Put your roots down deep in him. Get in the word. Get the word into you. The third response, the weak-willed response, verse 22. Now, he receives seed among the thorns as he who hears the word. And now let me teach you something in the Greek here. When you're reading in the Greek New Testament, anytime you see the word and, it probably is the Greek word kai, K-A-I. And kai can be translated and or but, right? And so sometimes when you hear me reading, I'll just assume if that's a kai that it goes better with the word but instead of the word and, right? And this is one of those places. Look what it says. He receives seed among the thorns as he who hears the word, but... The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Mm. The ones that fell among the thorns have also received the word at some level, but their faith is just one of many things that describe their life and usually not the first thing. It says the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, I have to be honest, as a pastor, this one has often scared me because it describes so many of the churchgoers I've seen over the years. Persons often in church, but the soil of the seed is in crowded soil. Many of you here are are having the word choked because it's in crowded soil. There's so much on your mind and so much that competes with growth in Christ Uh, that the word's being choked out, right? There are many cares you have that that are not being dealt with through a biblical faith. There are riches and pleasures you're pursuing in defiance of your biblical faith flourishing. And all of those things are like weeds that crowd out the faith, making you double-minded, unstable in all your ways. In your decision-making, when a Christian would would do one thing and a non-Christian would do another, too often you wind up doing what the non-Christian would do. In church, you often come in with a carnal frame of mind. Uh, You come in uh, evaluating uh, how uh, your sense of your own needs are being met rather than coming in thinking of yourself of being on a great commission team and how you can participate in advancing the gospel. And uh, it's just like that. You, 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 Paul warned in Corinthians about uh, those that think carnally, right? And um, he, the author of Hebrews said, by this time, we should be going on to another level, but we have to go back to the basic things with you. You're distracted by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And these things are like weeds growing alongside the seed that crowd out the bearing of fruit. Oftentimes, you just simply won't do the difficult work of a disciple in weeding out your spiritual life. You're not pulling up the porn so you can be pure. You're not throwing away alcohol so you can be sober-minded. You're not limiting your social media use so you can maximize your time in the Word and in prayer. You won't say no to time wasters so you can time your tithe 
to church ministry or ministering outside the walls. You just, it's crowded out. Now, I believe many in this category do know the Lord and have trusted him um, but need to do more trembling at the word of God, more intentional weeding, more intentional application of the things you're learning. If it's you, you need to immediately, and I need to stop immediately with the self-justification and judging of others and beg God for forgiveness and for focus, right? Now, um, I think this kind of person will waver on the whole issue of assurance because, again, we're looking for fruit. You're looking for people seeing Christ in you, and yet if you're making decisions that don't honor God, there ought to be a certain um, uh, uh, amount of time that you're just overwhelmed with guilt and evaluating whether or not uh, you need to confess some very basic things and get in accountability with other believers and get past this stage, but it represents so uh, many of us. The final response is verse 23, the total commitment response. He said, he receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30-fold. This person has understood. Do you, did you notice that? Uh, of the four, this is the only one in Matthew's gospel that it clearly says they understood of the four, the only one where it says understood, understands it. You might even want to underline that. They go on to bear fruit and produce some hundredfold, some 60, some 30. One thing that encourages me here is that he doesn't say a thousandfold or a millionfold, right? Billy Graham, he had a millionfold kind of impact. But most of us, if we love Jesus and we faithfully dispatch our duties uh, in our workplaces and homes and churches and things like that, we're more likely to influence 30 people or 60 or 100 during a lifetime of living out. And that's okay, right? And, uh, you know, as you do, the people you influence will influence others who influence others who influence others, and you'll get that Holy Spirit multiplication that is so powerful and wonderful. But I like that, that it's those kind of numbers instead of the ones that seem so wow and out there to us, you know, and, and that. Um, they went on to bear fruit, we're told here. They love Jesus. They hold tightly to God's word. They persevere in efforts to bear fruit, and the fruit comes. And there are many here in this room who are this kind of person, and it's a pleasure to serve God for you. Now let's get real again for a moment, because I, I don't want anybody to leave here with a troubled heart that has a tender heart for the Lord and growing. If this is you, you won't think of yourself this way. What you'll think of yourself as is that third person, or maybe even the second, or sometimes even the first, right? You'll think about yourself that, uh, man, I could be so much more in than I am, you know. You'll be like the Schindler's List guy, right, that at the end of the movie is saying, oh, if I'd sold this ring and this car, I could have saved that many more Jews from the Holocaust, right, and those different things. And if you are totally consecrated to God, one of the things you're going to be doing is so comparing yourself to him instead of to others that you're going to feel all the time humbled by the fact that there could be more done for the Lord and your mind is drawn toward the weeding you know you need to do. And so in reality, this is a beautiful parable to point us toward where Christ wants us to be, but in reality, most of us live that are growing in the Lord and bearing fruit in that third and fourth zone, right? And we just need to be intentional and focused as the Lord calls us to. 
So here's the uh, key for you, to keep abiding in Jesus and keep on keeping on in your walk with the Lord. The final word for today, the secret to victory in the Christian life is to say yes to God the Holy Spirit one decision at a time. Tomorrow morning, you're gonna go to work or you're gonna go to this gathering or that gathering. You're gonna go uh, and be around family and friends and coworkers and church members and other things during the week. And all along the way, there's gonna be decision after decision that come your way. Some of them you're gonna get right for the Lord. Others of them you're gonna blow for the Lord, right? The secret of victory in a daily sense is to say yes to God the Holy Spirit one decision at a time. To just take that moment and pray and say, Lord, what would you do if you were here in this situation? How does your word apply to this situation? When you say yes, you have a sense of victory. Now, along the way, you're gonna blow it. As Moses said, who is there who does not sin, right? And so part of saying yes is realizing when you didn't a minute ago, or you didn't an hour ago, and you spoke an unkind word, you had an impure thought, you did an unkind act, and instead of justifying it, saying, yeah, that's the kind of sinner I really am, Lord, by your grace, help me to go back and ask that person for forgiveness, say the right thing the next time there, to shut that out of my life because it's not from God, and to go on from there. Now, so let's walk you through this. If you're not a believer, you need to turn to the Lord. And as present the sinner to him, he'll be your savior. If you're a new believer, like that second soil, grow as Jesus' disciple. Really get in the word. Uh, when you first get into the word, you might need a help of a devotional. We've got several out here. There's great things you can uh, buy online or even apps you can use. But know there will be troubles as you apply the Bible to your life. Know that not everybody's going to like it if you stand for Christ. And that's just the reality. For the maturing Christian, it's to continue to weed out what should not be in your life with the help of the Holy Spirit and the church. And for the fruit-bearing Christian, it's the call to continually persevere and partner with other believers to advance Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.